Good morning. It's good to see all of you here. Thank you for all of you who have come to worship with us in this house here and all of you who are worshiping with us from your house, wherever that may be. We're grateful uh, for all of you who are in attendance this morning and thank you for worshiping with us. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them and turn with me once again to the book of Habakkuk. The book of Habakkuk. And if you're having a struggle, go to Matthew, turn left, five books, you'll find it. It's kind of tucked away back there, and uh, hopefully it won't be too difficult. Last week we began a new series of sermons through this little prophetic book, and um, I want us to pick back up where we left off last week. As we saw last week, this is a powerful little book, and, and, and it, is, it asks some very hard questions. In fact, that was where the whole book begins. It, it begins by asking some very hard questions that arose from the fact that the prophet looked around at the nation of Judah in which he lived and at the city of Jerusalem, and he, and he noticed so many different things and difficult things that he saw, and it raised some very difficult questions in his mind. Just to kind of reset the context for you, Habakkuk is a prophet to the nation of Judah, and he lived around the, the end of the 7th century B.C., and during his life, the, the nation of Judah, the people of God who lived there, they began to be ruled by wicked kings who had turned their backs on God. They engaged in the worship of false gods. They began to engage in difficult and hard things to hear, stuff like cultic prostitution. They began to sacrifice children to the God of Moloch. According to Ezekiel chapter 16, the people of Judah had become so wicked that God told them that Sodom and Gomorrah appeared righteous next to them. That's tough. That's a, that's a tough hear to hear from God. They had profaned the holy name of the living God and they had broken their covenant with God. God had promised that as long as they obeyed his commandments, as long as they walked according to his statutes, as long as, as they would live obedient and be his people, that he would protect them, that he would give them and keep them secure in the land which he had given them. But he also said, if you turn your back on me and you follow after false gods, and you disobey the commands that I give to you, then I, your God, will punish you. And in this, and in essence, that's, that's really what the prophet Habakkuk is wanting to know. God, why are you allowing this to continue? The people of, your people have disobeyed you. So why are you continuing to allow them to exist in the way that, how long are you going to continue to allow this to go on? Why did you allow it to happen to begin with? Judah was a nation in shambles because of its disobedience to God. And it appeared to Habakkuk that God was just letting it happen. He had no intention of doing anything about it. As I mentioned last week, Habakkuk is a confused man in the middle of troubling times, wondering what God is up to. And though this book may have been written over 2,700 years ago, the dilemma that Habakkuk faced and the questions that he asked are just as poignant and just as relevant in our world today. When we look at all that's going on around us, when we look at the chaos in our own government, when we look at the division among our own nation, 
when we consider the effects that COVID-19 has had upon our people, but not just here in the, in the United States, but the havoc that it has wreaked all over the world, when we, when we hear of the international violence that is beginning to take place in countries that are opposing the United States of America, we wonder, how long is this going to continue to go on? I want to know, how long? Why, God? Why are you allowing these things to happen? How long must we endure this? I think the truth truly is we are people for whom it can be said that we are confused folks living in troubling times. And at least for me, I'm honest to say, God, what is going on? Well, that was the question that Habakkuk asked, and that's where we stopped last week. So this week we're going to pick up with God's answer. But let me tell you in advance, God's answer is hard. In fact, I've entitled today's sermon, A Hard Answer for Hard Questions. That's where we pick up. We pick up with the Word of God back to the prophet Habakkuk in response to the questions that he asked in verses 2 through 4. Pick up reading with me in verse 5. The Word of the Lord. God says, Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe though it were told you. For indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses also are swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. They all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings and princes are scorned by them. And they deride every stronghold for they heap up earthen mounds and seize it. Then his mind changes and he transgresses and he commits offense, ascribing this power to his God. That's the hard answer. Now Habakkuk has a response. And this is his response. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O Rock, you have marked them for correction. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Why do you make men like fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? Then they take up all with them with their hooks and they catch them in their net and gather them in their dragnet and therefore they rejoice and are glad. Therefore they sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their dragnet because by them they share is, their share is sumptuous and their food plentiful. Shall they therefore empty their net and continue to slay nations without pity? Then Habakkuk says, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. 
for the people of God. Let's pray this morning. Father, I pray that you would help me as I stand before your people and do my very, very best to proclaim your word. I pray that you would anoint what I say, not in any way to bring attention to me, but Lord, to bring attention to yourself. And I pray for the broken hearts and the the fearful hearts, the sad hearts, the angry hearts, the hardened hearts that are in this room and those online. I pray that you would penetrate every single one of them by the power of the gospel this morning and draw us to you. You are our only hope. We have no hope other than in you. Remind us of that and then give us confidence to live in light of that truth. We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. As I mentioned, this is a hard answer for hard questions. And Habakkuk asked those hard questions, as I mentioned, back up in verses 2 through 4. God then responds with what he readily admits is going to be an exceedingly difficult answer for Habakkuk to understand and to get his mind around. This morning, I provided just some simple hooks for us to just hang our thoughts on as we work our way through this text. And the first hook that I want to give you, and the first thing that I think just helps us understand a little bit of what's explained in this passage is this. Based upon verse 5, notice that Habakkuk is going to be astounded by God's answer. That's the first point. Astounded by God's answer. Verse 5 is one of those awesome verses that I think undoubtedly caused Habakkuk to tremble when God said it. The Lord says this, Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told to you. Now, it would be possible to kind of take this verse and sort of cut it out of the rest of the context and it becomes a wonderful verse at that point. Look and be astounded, be utterly amazed at all the things that I'm going to do in the world. You wouldn't believe it if I told you and we might think, well, that's wonderful. But I can promise you that Habakkuk was not overjoyed when he did what God told him to do. Now, what's interesting is is that verse 5 is God's way of sounding an alarm. This is God's way of saying, you better wake up and look and see what's going on. What you're going to see is not going to be pleasing to the eyes, but, but you need to understand what's going to happen. He's telling Habakkuk, you may have thought that I was being idle. You may have thought that I was just being inactive. You may have thought that I was indifferent and uncaring about what was going on in the nation of Judah, but nothing could be further from the truth. Back up in verse 3, you'll notice that Habakkuk is saying, God, why why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? Habakkuk's eyes were focused in and around the city of Jerusalem. He was seeing all that was going on in his own country. He was watching how his own people were acting and responding and turning their backs on God. His vision was on his own people. God says, lift your head up and look internationally and see what I am about to accomplish. You see... It was there on the international front in Habakkuk's day that God intended to do something amazing and astounding, the likes of which, if he were to outline it and tell Habakkuk all the details of it, the prophet would still be completely and utterly unable to comprehend it. And what that told Habakkuk, and I believe what it tells us, is that God is not inactive. God is not indifferent. When we we can't see Him working, that does not mean He is not working. When we don't 
when we are not able to understand all that he's doing, that does not mean that he's not doing something. Brothers and sisters, God works in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. Make no mistake about it, God is still working that way in our world today. Amidst all the chaos and the confusion and the trouble which we are able to see, make no mistake, God's not inactive. He's not being idle. He's not being uncaring and indifferent. He's just working in mysterious ways. I think the word mysterious and astounding and alarming and unbelievable, all of those are good words to describe what the Lord describes happening here. You see, next, God tells Habakkuk that he intends to do something amazing. He's going to raise up an utterly godless and pagan nation to come and to destroy Judah. In other words, God intended to work the work that Habakkuk had been praying for, just not in the way that Habakkuk thought he was going to do it. He was going to answer. God intended to answer Habakkuk's prayers, but just not in the way that Habakkuk expected them. In any way that Habakkuk ever dreamed possible. In fact, I would say it's less of a dream and more of a nightmare that God describes it's going to occur. Habakkuk would be astounded by God's answer, but the second hook that I want you to see is that Habakkuk was going to be perplexed by God's plan. Perplexed by God's plan. You see, in response to Habakkuk's complaint with regard to how bad the situation was in Judah, God basically tells him, you think it's bad now. You haven't seen bad like it's going to be. It's going to get much worse. He tells him in verse 6, God says, for indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans. Now, we need to understand this here, that the Chaldeans are the same as the Babylonians. It's another word for the same thing. We, we, we're from the United States, and we sometimes say we're from America. This is the, the Chaldeans and the Babylonians are interchangeable here. And so this would have been an astounding fact, something very perplexing for, for, for Habakkuk to be able to understand. First of all, God, God was raising up this this power in this time that, that at this point when, when God speaks to him, the Chaldeans were not the world power. In fact, the Assyrians were the dominant force in the world at this point. But God tells him that, that the Babylonians will come, the Chaldeans will come, and they will ultimately overpower the Assyrians and they will become the dominant world force. But the important thing to note that we must note according to verse 6 is that it is God who is the one behind it. It's God the one who is raising them up. God was the one who stood behind the rising power of a foreign nation that would ultimately march against his own people in the nation of Judah. Brothers and sisters, that is nothing short of an astounding answer and a perplexing plan. And I believe it would have shocked Habakkuk. I want to pause for just a moment and I want to make a couple of statements that I believe are incredibly important that I think are evident from our study of this passage. But they're incredibly applicable to the confusing and the troubling and fearful times that we find ourselves in at this present moment. The first thing that I would point out based upon what we learn here in this text and from countless others, to be frank, about it in the Scriptures is this. The momentous events that we see occurring all around us in our lifetime Every single one of them are under God's complete and sovereign control. I want to say it again. 
Everything that is occurring in our lifetime that we see taking place around us, every last one of those events fall under God's total, sovereign, omnipotent control. From the chaos in our government to the global impact of this pandemic to the rise and the strengthening of other powerful nations who rattle their swords and spew out their venom, make no mistake about it, God is still in complete, total, sovereign control. We may not understand those things. We certainly may not like those things. We may not understand how God is going to use all of those things and make sense of it, but brothers and sisters, we must not mistake all of what is going on as being random and outside of God's supreme jurisdiction. The second thing that I would say based upon this text and upon many others as well, as well as life experience, is that God's responses to our prayers don't always come the way that we want them to come. God does not answer us. He is not obligated to answer us in the way that we think he ought to answer us. In fact, I would suggest to you that often he answers us in ways that are far different from how we had ever imagined or thought. To put it bluntly, God's ways astound us. They perplex us. They often confuse us. We cannot, we cannot make sense of what he does or why he does it. One has written it this way. He says, the reason that is happening is because we have no true sense of how divine providence embraces all of the actions of men within his decree so that in a way perfectly consistent with his own infinite purity, as Paul writes in Ephesians 1 verse 11, he works all things after the counsel of his own will. God can take the evil actions of evil men and use them for his holy purposes. And based upon what he says here in verse 5, he knew that that would be astounding to Habakkuk. And let me just say to you, it is still astounding and it is still perplexing to us today. The perplexing nature of God's plan really is what makes up a great deal of the rest of the passage that I read for you this morning. Because God said that he was raising up the Chaldeans. He's raising up these Babylonians. And what's perplexing about that, first of all, is that they're pagan people. They did not worship the God of Israel. They had no regard for him. They had no regard for his chosen people whatsoever. Yet it was God who was raising them up and make them a tool of punishment for his own people. Not only were they pagans, they were power hungry. When you read what God says there from verse 6 all the way down through verse 11, you can't walk away without understanding just how powerful they were and how, how engaged in the power that they had. They had ability to do things that no other nation could do. They were military striking force that no other nation was able to stand against them. The way the Lord describes the Chaldeans is overwhelming to say the least. He says they would be dreaded and fearsome. They would be unbounded by the laws and by the legal system of other nations. They would be violent. They would have a voracious appetite. Who would be for destruction and for conquest. They would not only conquer, but they would deport the people of the nations that they conquered. 
in order to discourage them and in order to disorient them. And they would be unfazed by the kings and the rulers that they would go up against. They had no regard for the weaker nations around them. They were power-hungry pagans, but they were also proud. In their minds, their own supremacy and their own success rested upon themselves, upon their military might. They trusted and worshiped in themselves. They were proud, power-hungry pagans. That was who God was raising up to judge his own people. As he says in verse 6, even though the Chaldeans and the Babylonians were blinded to the power and the reign of Almighty God, God was still the one in control. He used those who were opposed to him and had no regard for him to accomplish his purposes. Brothers and sisters, he still works the same way today. Now, I told you this is a hard answer. It's a hard answer that God gives to the hard questions that was asked by this prophet. And it was not an easy answer that the prophet was able to understand. In fact, I think he's so overwhelmed by it that he staggers. He's sort of like a guy that gets hit with a one-two punch. It was bad when he started. The nation of Judah had left a bad taste in his mouth. After God tells him what he's going to do in the second half of chapter 1, I think he's wishing he just had the bad taste and not the punch in the gut that God had just given him. Because things went from bad to worse. And you can easily see that in how Habakkuk follows up with questions beginning in verse 13 down through verse 17. I'm not going to reread all of it for you. I want you to go back and read it for yourself. But just consider how perplexed and how confused Habakkuk was by what God had just said to him. And he wants to ask some questions. He says, God, how do you tolerate treachery? How can you, how can you allow a wicked nation to devour a nation more righteous than they are? How could you endorse an unjust people as vicious and violent as you describe? How can you excuse a people who are idolaters? You notice down in verse 16 that that Habakkuk says, look, they sacrifice to their own nets and burn incense to their dragnets. In other words, they were idolaters. How can you allow that? How can you use that, God? And then in verse 17, basically he's asking, will you just allow their reign and their disregard for the lives of others to go on forever? Habakkuk is completely taken aback by God's answer and by God's plan. I believe he's totally confused by what God intends to do. Here's, here's something I think we ought to understand. Though. True faith will often find itself perplexed at God and the answers that God gives. True faith will find yourself confused by what God does sometimes. And listen, how God chooses to work in our lives and the way in which He governs His universe, well, to be honest, that sometimes raises even more problems and more questions in our lives and creates more confusion than how things started. Habakkuk certainly was there. He struggled with how God so pure and so holy and removed from evil could use such a wicked nation to punish and judge the people of Judah. If you think about this, he says, God, I know I came to you with what Judah was doing. And look, they're bad, but we ain't them. 
These people over here are far worse. They do things much worse than what we do. I mean, God, come on. You've got to be able to understand the difference here. Yeah, we're bad. We're not that bad. How can you use that group to punish us? You see where he's at? You see the tension that he's got? Habakkuk was astounded by God's answer. He was perplexed by God's plan. He's rocked to his core. He's disoriented. He's grasping for something that makes sense. He's looking for something that he can hold on to. And as he says in chapter 2, verse 1, I've registered my complaint with God. Now I'm going to stand on my watch and I'm going to wait until he responds to me. But then it's interesting. It's interesting there at the end of verse 2, he says, and I will answer what I will answer when I am corrected. Habakkuk knew he couldn't get his hands around everything that God was saying, but he also knew what he knew about God. And those two things didn't seem to be in harmony at the moment, but he knew that somehow God was going to bring them into harmony. He's confused, but notice the third hook I want you to see. He's confused, but he's confident in God's character. He's confused, but he's confident in God's character. Look back with me at verse 12, because here Habakkuk knew something that, that stayed, he stayed in touch with and he grabbed onto when he couldn't grab onto anything else. He knew this much about God. Notice what he says. He says, are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O Rock, you have marked them for correction. I want you to know there's some interesting and important points that we must not miss from what Habakkuk says here. The first thing that Habakkuk reminds us of is that God's eternal. He says, are you not from everlasting? He asked that question. He's not asking God to give him an answer. He already knows the answer. God, you, you've been here from before anything ever happened. You're the eternal God. You're the Alpha and the Omega. You're the beginning and the end. You're the first and the last. You were here before any of this ever was, and you'll be here long after all of this is gone. That's important. It's important when we face the struggles. That, look, right now, we go out to our cars and turn on, if, you're, if your phones haven't already started dinging, I have no doubt that at some point, bad news is going to strike today. It's been striking almost on the hour every day in my life for the last two weeks. It's not coming by the day, it's coming by the hour. But you want to know something? God's eternal. God is not confined to the time that you and I are in. He existed long before everything that's happening came about, and He'll be here long after it's gone. You and I have to come to grips with the fact that that's who God is. He's eternal. That's the first thing. Second thing is this. Habakkuk calls Him His Lord. Lord God. Now, listen. I've told you this. Whenever you see the word Lord, especially in the Old Testament, and it's all capital letters, that is the, that's the English word that is put in the place for where the name of God comes in the Old Testament. So that is the name Yahweh. When he says there in verse 2, Oh, Yahweh, my God, that's what he's saying. And Yahweh in the Hebrew is a to-be verb. 
It means I am. When, when, when Moses asked God, who am I to tell Pharaoh that you said sent me? He said, you tell him that I am has sent you. God is the I am. You know what that means? That means he's the self-existent one. He does not need anyone or anything to make him exist. He is not dependent upon anything else for his existence. He is self-existent. He always has been the I am. He always will be the I am because he is eternal and he is a self-existent. But then notice what else he says. He says, oh Lord my God, my holy one. God is holy. Don't miss that. Everything God does is right. God doesn't do anything that's not right. He's the thrice holy God. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. When you are hurting, and the pain is so much, you can still hang on to the fact that everything God does is right. God is holy. He's eternal. He's self-existent. He's holy. Everything He does is right. Psalm 145 verse 17 says, The Lord is righteous in all His ways and kind in all His works. Brothers and sisters, you will come to a point in your life where you have to wrestle, do I believe that or not? Notice the fourth thing, though. God is completely sovereign. We've already seen that from verse 6, that God is completely in control. But I want you to notice Habakkuk reaffirms it right here. He says, you are the one who marked them out. You have appointed them for judgment. You've marked them out for correction. God is sovereign. He's the omnipotent one. He is the completely powerful one. This is incredibly important to remember. The Babylonians thought that they were the ones in charge. They were nothing but pawns in the hand of a almighty God who was using them. They accomplished, they did exactly what they wanted to do in life and God used everything that was going on with them to accomplish his plans. One of my favorite, one of my absolute favorite pieces of advice that I have given, I'm not much of a counselor, I'll just go ahead and tell you. But one of my favorite pieces of advice that I've ever given in counseling is simply this. Just because you hear hoofbeats doesn't make it an elephant. Just because it sounds like something is as bad as it is doesn't mean it's as bad as it sounds. Just because you hear hoofbeats doesn't make it an elephant. But now listen to this. I added something later in life. I don't know when, but it's been as helpful as anything else I've ever said. Even when it is an elephant, Brothers and sisters, God's bigger than an elephant. Even when it's the worst case scenario that you can possibly imagine, God's still bigger than that. What if chaos engulfs our government? What if our country continues to divide? What if the pandemic continues to spread? What if we go to war? What if North Korea truly does develop nuclear power weapons? What if Iran gets the ability to develop nuclear-powered weapons? 
What if the stock market crashes? What if you're diagnosed with an incurable disease and the doctor says, we don't have any hope? What if the person that loved you the most You watched them as they get lowered into the ground. And you try to figure out how you're going to take the next step. What if? I want you to notice something. No matter what, what if you can come up with, God's bigger than that. God's sovereign, He's mighty. He's in control. Nothing that you and I will ever face is bigger than he is. And that stands behind the statement that I think Habakkuk makes in the middle of verse 12 when he says, we shall not die. That brings me to the fifth thing, if you're keeping track of notes. He's eternal. He's self-existent. He's holy. He's sovereign. He's faithful. He's faithful. He keeps his promises. Do you remember what God promised the nation of Israel? I will be your God and you will be my people. He promised Abraham, I will create from you a nation that is, that is, that is more numerous than the stars in the sky or the sands on the seashore. He repeated that promise to Isaac and to Jacob and to David. And Habakkuk remembered that. And he remembered that the God that he served was a promise-keeping, faithful God. And so he says to them, he says to God, you are faithful. We will not die. Here's the point. Habakkuk began by struggling and wanting to know why God had chosen to be so quiet, wanting to know why God hadn't answered his prayers the way he wanted. He wanted to know why God was allowing wickedness to continue to exist then once God showed him how he intended to bring judgment to the nation of Judah, Habakkuk came back more confused and more afraid and more thrown off than he was to begin with. He was astounded by God's answer. He was perplexed by God's plan. And he was confused by his circumstances. But Habakkuk had every reason to be confident based upon what he knew of God's character. When you hit your stone wall, when you cannot figure out what's going on and you are tempted to throw your hands up and quit because it doesn't appear that God is listening and when you're tempted to be driven to despair and disillusionment over the difficulties and the trials that you're facing, I want you to remember that God is eternal and He is self-existent and He is absolutely holy. He will never do anything wrong. Nothing he does is apart from his holy character. He is also completely sovereign and all-powerful. Nothing happens outside of his will. And finally, he is faithful. He will always, 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 always keep his promises to you. He's the most dependable being in the entire universe. Because that's who he is and because of that's his character, you and I have hope. I want you to notice one last thing. Verse 13 is a tough one. Verse 13 in some ways probably puts it in the best way possible for us. Habakkuk says, God, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil 
you cannot look on wickedness. Have you ever thought about that? He couldn't get his hands around how God could use the Babylonians as wicked as they were. In his mind, that just didn't make any sense. Here's what I want you to understand. He was absolutely right. Habakkuk was absolutely right by what he said in verse 13. God does, he is too holy. He is too pure to look upon wickedness. And you know why that's a troubling statement for you and for me? Because Romans 3.23 tells us that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In fact, we go to Psalm 51. The psalmist tells us there in verse 5 that I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did I, my mother conceive me. That's the same story that every single one of us in this room has got. The prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 53 verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. Every single one of us have turned our own way. The Bible describes us as ungodly, lawless, sinners, children of disobedient, children of wrath, adulterers and adulteresses, and covenant breakers. That's just to get us started. One person that I read this week says, as human beings, we are lower than dirt. You want to know why? Because dirt never rebelled against God. And every single one of us have. Now I want you to think about that for just a moment and let that... Let that settle in because verse 13 is still true. God, you who are of pure eyes, you can't behold evil. You cannot look upon wickedness. Then if that's the case, then what hope do we have? Let's don't talk about the Babylonians. Let's don't talk about the people from Judah. Let's talk about you and me. What hope do we have to ever have the holy God of heaven look upon us? Here's where perhaps I think unknowingly at the time, Habakkuk pulls back the curtain of God's mercy and his plan of salvation. You see, though nothing specific is said about the Messiah here, that doesn't mean that he's not present. Habakkuk struggled in verse 13 with how a righteous and holy God could hold his tongue and remain silent while the wicked and perverse devoured and swallowed up a man more righteous than they were. To Habakkuk, that didn't make sense. Neither does the gospel. Because, brothers and sisters, it pleased the Lord to crush him and to put his Messiah to grief. He made his soul an offering for sin. The apostle Peter says of Jesus Christ, for Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. The writer of Hebrews says he has appeared to put away sin and to set by the sacrifice of himself. What Habakkuk could not get his mind around, but what you and I must get our minds around, is that God remained silent when the wicked swallowed up his son so that our debt of sin might be paid in full and we might be saved. As one has put it, our main problem in this world is not that the wicked swallowed up a man more righteous than he. Rather, that is our only hope. Jesus the righteous was overwhelmed and swallowed up so that we might be saved. And that's what brings me to my sermon in a sentence this morning. Because you see, this God that we've been talking about this morning, he is the eternal, self-existent, holy, sovereign, faithful God. And he 
has sent his infinitely righteous son into this world to be devoured by the wicked so that our debt of sin might be paid in full and we might be set free and saved. Why? Why would God allow his son to be crucified? Why would the Lord Jesus Christ be made to suffer at the hands of wicked and cruel men? How could God do such a thing? He did it. He allowed that judgment to fall upon his own son so that you and I might be pardoned. We might be set free. That we might be cleared of that debt that was ours to pay. His answer to our rebellion is astounding. His plan for our salvation is perplexing. Jesus Christ, the righteous, suffered and died so that unrighteous rebels like you and me might be saved. Who would ever come up with such a plan as that? Only an eternal, self-existent, holy, sovereign, completely loving God. And that kind of God that loved us enough to send his son to die for us, that kind of God can be trusted in the middle of of the most difficult moments that you and I will ever face. He, as the Bible says, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Listen, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for you on Calvary's cross and was raised again so that you have the hope of the resurrection in your, in your life, then you can trust the character of this same God who sent his son. You can trust him to take care of you in the middle of this trying, terrible, horrible, confusing time in which we find ourselves. If you want to know what God is up to, what God is up to is that he is bringing about the redemption of his church. And he will one day come again for us. And we may not completely understand his plan or be able to make sense of all of it, but we know who he is because his character has been revealed to us most clearly through the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to that end, you and I can have hope. Brothers and sisters, this, this is the word of God. And it is for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love and your mercy. I thank you for dying on a cross to save a wicked rebel like me. I deserved none of it. It was nothing that I had ever done to earn it. It's nothing I could ever do to earn it. It is purely by the grace of God and through His mercy that salvation has come into my heart, into my life. And because that is the case, I know I can trust you. These days have been some difficult days. You have strengthened me and you've given me the power to take the next step. And as Caroline has continued to encourage me to do the next right thing. Had it not been for you, I don't know how I would make it. Lord, I know that that is just my personal testimony. That is repeated again and again and again and across the men and women, boys and girls sitting in this room. You are our only hope. You're the only one we can turn to. And right now, we have no idea what's going to come next. We don't know what's going to happen next. But we know 
you're still in charge and you're still in control. And everything you do is right. And our confidence is in you. Lord, my prayer is if there is one in this room that does not have that confidence because they've never trusted in you. If there's one watching online or listening to this sermon at some later date and they've never trusted in you to be their Lord and Savior, that today would be the day that your Holy Spirit would move into their lives in such a way that they cannot be able to know anything else except your love. And that they would trust you. They would place their faith in you. God, I ask that you walk with us. I know that you will. I ask that you strengthen us. I know that you will. And I thank you for being the God who loves us like you do. And I praise you in Christ's holy name. Amen.